1: To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss.
2: Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down. Brought to you by KDD Media Company.
1: One of the greatest things that I heard early on in education was that the Dalai Lama. You may or may not know this. They asked him what he thought was uh, the greatest invention of the 20th century, or you know, what was his biggest thing, and he goes, "Dr. Bob and Bill W." Coming up with Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest achievement of mankind in the 20th century.
2: This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co, at P-O-D-G-O, And be sure to add the Knockin' Doors Down podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Welcome to the Knocking Doors Down podcast. Your host, Jason LeChance. Uh, alcoholic, been through some childhood trauma, sexual abuse, but hey, we're taking that, fueling our future. That's what Knocking Doors Down is all about, is pushing through. My co host, Mikey Naraki. And, you know, gotten myself busted a time or two. What are you going to do? That's right. We all have some adversities, but we don't have to let that hold us down. And our guest, Butch Patrick. Good old Butch. Uh, you may know him as Eddie Munster from The Munsters and some other acting roles, but uh, hey, he's an all around kick ass awesome guy. You're going to hear it in this uh, interview. Very inspirational, fun conversation, and was just really easy to talk to. You guys are definitely going to have a good time with this one. And, of course, we have a good time with 5150LTM. That's right. We keep swagged out because of them, so thank you for that. Click the link in the podcast description, go to the official website, and use the code KDD20 for 20% off at checkout when you get the 5150 gear. What was the code? KDD20. Sweet.
1: you know, it's, it's amazing um, until, number one, growing up in the business and being as old as I am, um, I grew up in the 60s. I was born in 53, but I actually started working in 1960, and um, in that 15-year window from 60 to 75, not only was it really a great time to be around a lot of creative music and TV and movies and stuff, but it was a, I mean, the 60s itself is like... The decade that is taught in schools because um, you know, you literally so much went on that you you have to sort of understand it, unless you live through it, it's tough to explain in real time. But having said that, it was so easy to get involved in. Bad behavior and drugs and alcohol because it was acceptable. It was just the norm. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, that was it. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when I was 15 years old, I couldn't wait. I, looking at Woodstock, I couldn't wait to smoke my first joint. You know, I couldn't <laughs> wait to sneak a beer. I mean, it was just that's what everybody was doing. Then, unfortunately, you know, if you have the gene and, and I was really good at throwing parties. I just continued to do it for the next forty years, <laughs>
3: yeah. But, yeah.
1: but the but the novelty wore off real quick. It became maintenance, right. as you all know. Mm-hmm.
3: And Not I'm sure well. everybody was you know enabling you, and no one was saying, "Hey Butch, you got to calm down, relax," because they were loving these parties that you were throwing. They were loving to attend them. <laughs> so yeah.
1: Paul Peterson, who was uh, was one of the probably the most outspoken and and knowledgeable advocates uh, from the Donna Reed Show and the Mickey Mouse Club, he Mm -hmm. formed a a company called A Minor Consideration after his dear friend Rusty Hamer from Make Room for Daddy committed suicide and died. So Paul took it upon himself to try to uh, educate people to the pitfalls of this Hollywood lifestyle that everybody placed on this wonderful pedestal that you know thinking everything was great and wonderful and it was far from it yeah. for some for some people it was fine you know mm-hmm. i mean the, the industry is the industry and a lot of times people came through it unscathed but unfortunately a lot of times more more times than not there was some big issues and of course the negative issues always make headlines and sell mm-hmm. newspaper and time so you you hear about them a lot more than the success stories just right. the, na- the nature of the business but um paul coined the term perfectly he says you know in Hollywood, the enablers, when you mentioned the enabling process is like, you know, you think of Michael Jackson and and, the, and you think of Kali Culkins and you think of a lot of people, but nobody ever told him no. I mean, yeah. That was not in the vocabulary. You know, you wanted to hang around and you wanted a paycheck or you wanted to play. You wanted to stay close to people. Elvis comes to mind. Nobody yep. so, nobody ever told him no. Yeah. So right. that is very, very true that people didn't have your best interest. And even parents, your, you know, your, your protector parents. You, a lot of them were the problem not yeah. not, the, not 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 the to be your protector they were part of the problem
2: yeah, yeah. And, and we've seen that so many where it, where it's come out of various people that have said that that you know uh, child stars their parents would just drop them off at a party and leave or something and in my head I'm like holy shit as a father too in no way there is no way in any environment I don't care where that's gonna occur it's it's it just baffles my mind.
1: It, it, it's a whole different, you know, it it, it was just an interesting different world. It, it, it is what it is. And, you know, when I went into treatment, I was 57 years old. I had never, in fact, there's a funny story involving that is the, um, I knew, I knew I had, I had issues for probably 10 years before I actually got help. And like mm-hmm. a lot of people, you tippy toe around it, you mm-hmm. wake up with a hangover and you call someone who's sober and you sort of pick their brain a little bit and then you sober up and your headache's gone and you go back to partying, you know, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. The, the seeds planted and it took me a while to actually do it. But what happened with me was, um, a friend on the West coast, I was in Philadelphia and I had just done a pretty good season. So I had money and, you know, things were going, but I was just feeling bad. I was really physically beat up pretty bad. So a friend of mine suggested that, look, and I found this place on California. He opened up the yellow pages. And it just popped off the yellow page. You talk about divine intervention and it was, it was called Oasis and they called Oasis. It was the first number he saw on the page. And he said, I have a, a friend of mine who is a child actor who would like to get into treatment. And uh, he doesn't have insurance. She, the woman that answered the phone, um, the uh, uh, um, Stacy, who was admissions officer said, Oh my God, I got to get Jim on the phone. He's been wanting to help a child actor forever. So, hmm. As it turns out, the you know the the, the uh, planets aligned. Jim A. Jim Antonowicz he was the original interventionist for the show Intervention, oh, and damn. they parted ways when the TV producers wanted them to get someone that was sober, drunk, to bring them in all messed up on camera. And Jim said, "No, I'll have none of that." If this person came all the way out here, and he's sober when he gets off the plane. He stays sober. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know, for your production company, I can't play that game. This is not about you know, ratings and it's not about, you know, TV. This is about someone's life. And so they parted ways. But the idea was that I was, I accidentally stumbled into the greatest place on the planet for me called Oasis Treatment Center. And everybody there had come through the process. They were all recoveries. They were, they, they came in as patients and then they got sober and then they became counselors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a, the process. So everybody there was street smart and book smart and part of the program. And what happened with Jim he just happened his, his father loved the Munsters and he wanted to get a kid actor sober because if he could get someone sober, he could, I could reach millions where in 22 years of uh, his treatment center, he had helped like 8,000 people, but he knew that someone of a higher profile could help him a lot by getting the word out. And all I had to do was just get sober and stay sober, which luckily for me, I did. But, um, and he, and he waived the fee and I went into it I went and I just stumbled into the greatest place and I've been sober ever since and um, that's kind of like how it how it happened for me It just happened to be I hadn't been to a treatment center before that was part of the criterion He didn't want someone that had gone in this the system seven or eight times and kept coming out and relapsing and relapsing so luckily for me it was the first time his, his father liked the Munsters and it happened to be uh, nearby in Southern California and the rest is history.
2: That's awesome. Butch, we always find, I know, especially for me, a lot of my stuff is, and and my sponsor put it really well. Actually, he was a former guest, too, um, that uh, he was an alcoholic in behavior long before. I know for me, a lot of it started with childhood stuff, of course, coming from a family with a background of of addiction. Uh, What was your situation, you know, growing up? I mean, it just. a, obviously, the child star stuff—that's very can be very disorientating for for a child. I mean, you're a full time worker, which it's the only industry you can get a full time job at that age. But what was what was home life like too? That maybe subsequently led towards uh, substance abuse.
1: Well, my mom was was wonderful person, warm, loving family. It was the house that all the kids would come to the pool. You know, she, it was great. It was it was a go to. It was a go to house when the, for the right reasons. But when I turned sixteen, um, what happened with my life? And up to that point, no. My mom was a social drinker. My dad was a social drinker. Martinis. You know, the 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 old stereo cabinet that had records on one side and a bar on the other side. <laughs> you know, all, all the whole Dick Van Dyke living room look. But everybody with not quite cigarette holders, but the martini glasses was very common so it was a typical entertainment weekend warrior situation you know it wasn't like it wasn't like seven days a week it was like entertaining the typical stuff but what happened for me was a very unique situation when when i turned 16 years old i got my car uh prior to that i had just started dabbling i had just done an adam 12 of all shows and i met a kid on adam 12 and i stayed at his house out in the valley and he had horses and he knew where weed was and everybody you know we all were wanted to experiment so when I got my car, that allowed me transportation and freedom to go do what I wanted to do. My girlfriend at the time was living at the top of Laurel Canyon. This is the summer of, of Charles Manson. Oh wow! The I did it right before my birthday. I did a, a Marcus Welby when they landed on the moon. So we had, we were, you know, we were in love. The moon landing, my car, and then in September I took that same friend to an interview. To go do a movie and as, a, as he as he left the interview with the producer the producer spotted me and he says butch patrick and i go yeah and he goes do you have a minute i go yeah i drove him and he goes well rick sit down may i speak to butch and you know of course i went in and i came out with the interview the part for the part that i drove the guy up for just happenstance but what happened was three days later at the age of 16 and one month i was in brazil for three months with no teacher and no parent And all I had to do was show up for work in the lobby at the hotel every morning. And during that three months, as my sister stated in my chip ceremony, I left as Richie Cunningham and I came back as John Lennon in 1969. So what happened was I was allowed this three month window to where not only was I doing my job, but as soon as I got off work, I could go pretty much do anything I wanted to do in this town. And I had means I had money. I, I started doing a, um, money, uh, a money currency exchange down in the bar because all the American, uh, naval ships were there. So I was doing money exchange. I was going on the ships, bringing cigarettes off, selling cigarettes on the black market. And then I found a guy that supplied me with pot. So I'm selling pot to everybody in the hotel all this time. Well, I'm 16 years old. I look about 14, but I was always a businessman. It's kind of like risky business with uh, Tom Cruise. You know? yeah. <laughs> but I came back and I, it was a full blown party after that. And, um, my work started to suffer. I, I still hung on for about five more years. But um, all I really wanted to do was go to the beach, race the cars, surf. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that at this point in your life if you can get away with it? Yeah. I got away with it. But the leading up to the, the thing with after that, my mom inadvertently was an enabler. She didn't know it at the time. She just thought she was being a good friend and you know helping me out because she thought I could handle anything. She just thought that she didn't need to gear me and, and 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 direct me. But what happened was my mom and dad had divorced and there was a few divorces in our family. So there was never really a male role model around mm-hmm. for me to attach to. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty much let 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 loose uh, to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And that's kind of how I grew up as a sort of a, you know, wild uh, do what I need to do, throw parties. I wanted to be accepted by my peers. And that's what I did well.
2: Yeah. Oh, I can only, you know, um, do, do you think having gotten the, the role, uh, you know, the Monsters was your first big notoriety role, um, that that also played into some of those insecurities, like you said, you know, wanting to be a part of the group and, and everything else? Because, boy, I... I, I you've been in recovery a lot longer than me, but I'm hearing it like every meeting was, is is connectivity. And we found it in our substance use. Of course, now we find it in our programs. But that that was a big desire. The goal was that to continue to fit in and 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 almost not even understanding ego at the time.
1: Somewhat. I, I was lucky that I lived about 30 miles south of Hollywood, in a little town called Gardena, which was in the South Bay. I'm right now in Manhattan Beach. So I had a dual life. I would go to work. But I had my friends, you know, my football guys, my baseball guys, my surf buddies, everybody. I didn't hang around the Hollywood crowd. I went, that was my job. And this was my personal life was here. So I had a good separation of that. Mm-hmm. During uh, my younger years, I spent time with my grandmother in small towns in the Midwest. One for, The fifth grade for an entire year in a little town called Geneseo. The eighth grade in another small town called Macon, Missouri. So I got in and out of L.A. and Hollywood often enough. To have a good grasp of reality, so I was like really really a regular guy who could just handle memorization and do the job, but I was never a actor or you know or a you know really a career you know I never really wanted to do it as a career. I wanted to be a race car driver, and I thought this was a good way to supply me with the money that I was going to need eventually. So um, that in itself was 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 kind of how the the balance happened for me. But yes, to answer your question, I would. Utilize the acting thing when it, when it would benefit me to like meet a girl or something if you, sure. you, know, if you thought it would but most of the time I really preferred to stay under the radar and not talk about my my, my, my professional life because um, I just felt that it wasn't really that cool and I, I really thought it wasn't that important and then at, at the same time I wanted people to like me for me sure. uh, yeah. so I would get into relationships even when I was a little older to her I wouldn't even if a girl didn't know what I was doing for a living I wouldn't tell her until we pretty much had qualified each other for a few months, and then I would say, "Oh, by the way, I you know I also do some acting." I'll, I would take him to a party or something, but up front, I would I would very rarely mention that because I didn't know what the what the uh, the true intent was of other people, so I was kind of guarded.
3: Yeah, but that's good though. I mean, you wait for them yeah. to like you as a person yeah. before they like you for being on TV and stuff like that. That yeah, I, don't, I yeah. think that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I was just. saying people have asked me, like, you ever give you know, Does Eddie Munster ever get your chicks in a bar? And I go, Yeah, it can. But that really what, that I really mean, wasn't my, my main intent.
3: Me telling girls I talk to Eddie Munster might get me chicks in a bar. So thank you for that, Bush. Yeah, <laughs> just just <kidding. laughs> uh,
2: uh. We'll be back with Butch Patrick, and if you want to read something inspirational, make sure to pick up Carlos Vieira's autobiography, Knocking Doors Down, about his 13-year struggle with his cocaine addiction and how he turned his life around in giving back to the community. We'll have more with Butch where we'll uh, talk with him a little bit more about what he's doing now, his experience of going through rehab and being an inspiration to others, and random questions. This episode of Knocking Doors Down is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest one way to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from podgo apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience that's podgo.co at podgo.co. and be sure to add the knocking doors down podcast
4: in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application Strengthening communities, providing resources, building awareness, empowering youth in need to overcome adversity and achieve success. This is what the Carlos Vieira Foundation is all about. Through our campaigns, the Race for Autism, Race to End the Stigma, and Race to Be Drug-Free, we're able to help so many in need. Our goal is to provide support to families and children and give these families opportunities that might not normally arise. Learn more and find out how you can get involved. Visit Carlos. VieraFoundation.org today.
2: That's interesting that uh, you were uh, into uh, auto racing because I have to ask about that. You know, Carlos uh, uh, Viera. Of course, we sent you a copy of his book, Knocking Doors Down, and uh, you know he has a chapter about uh, racing stock cars, saving his life, as he calls it. What what got you into uh, auto racing?
1: Well, what happened was, is it was I had an interesting. In addition to being an actor, I mean, that wasn't enough. My mom had married a professional baseball player in 1964, hmm. named Ken Hunt, who basically was an LA Angel back before they were the California Angels. But right. he came from the Yankees. He was a he was Mickey Mantle's roommate as a rookie. Lifelong friends with Roger Maris, and um, so for me. I not only had a great time at the studio, but when I wasn't at the studio, I got to go to the ballpark and hang around with all the major league ballplayers who are a bunch of big kids anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, literally they're, you know, they're getting paid to play a game. They would have done for free, which was a whole different world back then as well. Big money wasn't there. Most of them had a second job in the, in the off season. Uh, Mickey Mantle, I think cracked the hundred thousand dollar mark was the first player, which was huge money back then. Mm -hmm. Everything was different. So But the drag racing thing, what happened with me when I got my first car, which was a 69 Mach 1, a friend that drove me to school in high school worked for a funny car guy named Roland Leong who owned the Hawaiian. Now, this is back in the late 60s, early 70s when drag racing was really in its glory days. I mean, they were still driving the cars. They weren't just the passenger in them. There There was a lot going on. So I started hanging around the drag strips with a good friend of mine, Steve Chrisman, whose dad, Jack Chrisman, literally was like the inventor of the funny car. I mean, he put a fiberglass body on a dragster. they said, Jack, that's a funny looking dragster. And the term, <laughs> the, the term stuck. And he was the first guy to campaign around the country with eight funny cars to have a meet. You had to have eight cars to set up the races and they replaced fuel alters. So between the, the baseball stadium and the drag strip and the movie studios, I had a pretty charmed life. You know, Mm -hmm. I had a lot of cool stuff going on and I was hanging around before I could go to bars instead of going out drinking. We would go to Keith Black's shop, which was the Chrysler Elephant Motor place where Don Perdome, Tom McEwen, Gene Snow, Big John and all the great nicknames, the Snake, the the (laughs) uh, Mongoose, Eddie, Fast Eddie Sharpman and Dino Don Nicholson and Jungle Jim Lieberman. It was just such a great time to go to the races. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do problem was is when i finally did get my money out of the bank that there wasn't quite the amount that i was expecting and the i could buy a funny car but i wouldn't be able to campaign it yeah mm-hmm. and so that deal fell by the wayside
2: yeah that's interesting and I, my favorite always and i got to meet her as a kid was uh cha-cha shirley mo Downey so. oh yeah sure. yeah
1: absolutely for, i have been you know hanging around with garlitz garlitz is still driving and he's like 88 years old you know yeah the uh the the heyday of drag racing back then was was really something special
2: yeah, it was cool. It was one of the things that I did with my dad a lot as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you you had a run about uh, another five years. I guess that's taking you around twenty three, twenty four with the acting. Um, yeah. What did you do after that? Because you know you you've it's documented you had some expensive habits with your substance abuse. You know, what, well, what was... I did
1: what everybody did. I figured out a way to keep my habit going and supply everybody else with them. <laughs> <laughs> It was, it was not, you see, and another thing about back in the day, um, it used to be, you know, you'd buy a pound of pot and, you know, everybody smoked weed. It was very much like the movie Blow, mm-hmm. you know, it was in the same area, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, Redonda Beach, where I grew up. Pretty much how it happened. You'd buy a pound, you'd sell 10 ounces, you'd have six ounces for free, and you'd never sell it anymore because it wasn't a money-making thing back then. It was all about just having, the, having access to it and having a stash and then when the cocaine came into play then it became money motivated and people started getting addicted a lot more and it became a little scarier and a little edgier and you know when the money came into play but when i started out it was just about having free pot you know it was never about making money right and then i got into the gaming industry because my mom had my mom's uh before she married the baseball player she was married to a gentleman that owned gambling casinos so i did that for a while and i didn't really gamble myself and i got tired of people yelling at me because they were losing money and, and blaming me for it so it wasn't a great place <laughs> to and uh and then i just you know some small businesses and just kind of like being a you know whatever whatever i could think of to come up with make some but i've always been pretty good at uh improvising and making money
2: yeah well that's kind of one of those go ahead sorry
1: you know i bought and sold a lot of cars i was always around cars and you know and and vehicles and motor vehicles and stuff so that was my dad at the 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 stepdad after that had a, uh, a Chrysler Chrysler Plymouth dealership in Orange County and I tried selling cars for a bit but uh, yeah you know just look look at the uh, there's there's a lot of money to be made in buying and selling cars and I tapped into that hmm.
2: yeah well what uh, what then occurred I mean because really like you said your your substance abuse had a longevity to it what was the point where you just you know all those subsequent years where you just went boy I, 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 this shit's got to stop.
1: Well, there's probably, I, I didn't really address it until I was probably in my 40s yeah. because through the 20s, you still think you're a teenager and mm-hmm. you can still party through it. Mm-hmm. You hit 30, you go, okay, this is fine. 30s, I'm, just, see, I was, all this time I was functioning. I was always functioning, and I always, as you know, you always look at somebody who's worse off than you, and you figure, well, I'm not that bad because I, like, you know, I still have money, sure. and then you know, I'm not in a corner with a brown, you know, I'm not on a street corner with a, a mad dog 22 or, or you know, mad dog 2020 or this or that. <laughs> so you always find the justification in your brain that you don't need help and it's not as bad as it really is. Sure. And you certainly aren't aware of the, the harm you're doing to other people. It's always about, well, I'm only hurting myself. It's just me. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same old, same old, you know, the, the war stories and the cliches, they're all so true. But, you know, a lot of people that have issues like us are pretty smart and we figure yeah. out ways to avoid facing the music and and not doing the mirror work and not looking at yourself. And, you know, just, just, I could justify, I used to like nothing more. My biggest kick used to be driving home at 4 in the morning or 5 in the morning or 6 in the morning, and everybody's going to work with their coffee, and I got a beer between my legs, and I'm rolling a joint on a Frisbee, driving my four-speed Corvette, black on black, coming back from a, from some chick's house, having just had a wild night of partying and getting home under the radar. That used That used to be a big rush for me. Mm-hmm. That's how bad it was.
2: Know, <laughs> but,
1: but that's what got, that's what I enjoyed. That was you know the counter. I wanted to do everything differently. I felt that uh, for some reason that's that's what made me tick. And unfortunately, it uh, it's, it doesn't do it anymore. But for a long time. That used to be a big kick for me it was like going against you know, swimming upstream running against the wind
3: yeah it's crazy how different people are with it because i remember coming home at like you know four or five in the morning still high because my drug of choice was cocaine so i'd be still sure. high as hell and then i'll get like a snapchat or something from somebody just going to work and i remember thinking Fuck, what am i doing with myself what am i doing like these guys are going to work and doing so i'm literally just getting home, you know what I mean. So it's crazy how minds are just so different. Exactly what we, BC. yeah, precisely.
1: Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and and getting a kick out of it. You know, you're pulling in the driveway, and everybody else is pulling out. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. It's Like
1: screw you guys. See, I
2: got life figured out. You're <laughs> clueless, you rat race sons oh, but, of bitches.
1: And and I got away with it for a long, long, long. I mean, I got, I got, I had run-ins with the law, and you know, and DWIs, and you know, all this stuff. But I just never, never, I've never got wrap my mind around that i was doing anything wrong for the longest time i thought i was gonna i actually right before i got help i was really thinking about you know how is this going to end it's not going to end well Mm -hmm. and i'm living by myself i'm in i'm up in the long island and um, i'm drinking from the morning from the time i wake up to the time i go to sleep and i'm waking up in the middle of the night because i can't even get through a sleep cycle without drinking more beer and i'm really now I'm figuring out, like, okay, I gotta, I, I, I'm trying to make an exit plan. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna kill myself because mm-hmm. I can't do that, but I am, although I am killing myself, yeah, you right. know, slowly. Sure. But I was, I was prepared to make an exit plan, and, and the irony of the whole thing was when I went into treatment, I, like everybody, after a few weeks, I thought I had it figured out. Okay, I'm gonna leave, and they yeah. talk you off the ledge, and in this on this case, it's a porch. They take you out the front porch, <laughs> and then you stick around another month, and then about after about sixty days, I thought you know, this isn't such a bad deal. And I'm, I might wrap my mind around the education or why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I was open-minded enough to take, you know, some advice from others who were smarter than myself. And what really got me was it became kind of a kind of a fraternity of sorts because I never went to college. I never went in the military. And this was my, sort of like my gang, you know, my group. Yeah, this mm-hmm. was like people that were similar to me of, in nature. And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, it hit me like a ton of bricks that this is the better way to go. And at that point in time, I happened to be in treatment with a with a world renowned doctor. He wasn't in there for alcohol; he was in there for another situation. But he and I befriended because we were old. Most mm-hmm. of these people in there are in their twenties, and we're in our fifties. So we become buddies. And I go up for a, a biopsy just a, just for just for normal what men do when they're in their fifties. And I find out I got a really bad case of prostate cancer. Oh, so now. It's like, isn't this the bitch? Here I am. I get sober. And now he's going to punch my ticket.
0: Ah. You know, Motherfucker. Had,
1: had I not been sober, that would have been my out card. I would have been like, oh, poor pitiful me. Oh, yeah. I have cancer. I'm going to die. And it would have been great. Okay. End of story. Butch got cancer. He died. And I didn't die of alcohol. You know, it was like, this is my out card. Yeah. But what turned out to be my out card was I. I went in for treatment because of this doctor. He fast tracked me. Through all this stuff that I needed to get done, and they got it right in the nick of time, and I'm cancer-free uh, ten years later. But awesome. that was the irony of getting sober and within six months or eight months of being sober, find out you have cancer and you're going to die. It was like, damn. But you know, something surprisingly, I wasn't too concerned about it because it was like at least I'm going to die sober. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, uh,
2: what that gave <laughs> me the to, chill. Because even
1: my spouse, my counselor said, "Does it bother you, if you have cancer?" I go, "Hey, what are you going to do?" You know, you got it. You got it. You don't. You don't. It is what it is. I was very, very much acceptable and in, uh, in uh, very much humbled by it, and ready for whatever happens, happens. So it, it took me very little time to drop the rock. My, the Jim A. who owned the treatment center told me he says once in a very great while you had a burning bush experience, and all desires and needs and cravings. For anything that you were doing has disappeared, and you're very, very lucky because most people don't get that lucky, and they really have to fight through it. Mm. Because but for some reason, God, you know, has blessed you. Your higher power has blessed you with the, with the no need for you to be on the edge, and that's why you can go out, and that's why you can travel, and that's why now I go to work in bars. I just don't hang around afterwards. Right. You know, I, it's not like some people have to insulate themselves from all kinds of negativity because they're this close to relapsing, and I really feel bad for them. But for me, I've been very, very lucky that it's allowed me to get out, be public about it, lead by example. I do a lot of speaker meetings. I never turned down a speaker meeting ever. And uh, it's been a good ride for me just by being uh, transparent about what happened to me is my program. Yeah. That's how I work my program.
2: Yeah, that's all. And it's so great that you you say that, that you're yeah. now with this situation, like you said, Hey, it gave me chills when you just said. Yeah, but at least if I have cancer and it's going to take me, I'm doing it sober, which, you know, that that switch of mentality for people that might be listening that don't understand or or are trying to understand a loved one that that suffers from addiction or has suffered from addiction, what we addicts can go through but also that you're being of such service. Do do you find, I know you did a a lot of of, uh, uh, Comic-Cons and things. I was actually at one. Your line was long and I didn't get to meet you, unfortunately, in person. Um, But uh, that people might come up to you and say, you know, hey, you inspired me towards sobriety.
1: Yeah, Facebook has been really good for that. And also in person as well, because what, what I've been good at is people have reached out to me because of my age, it's interesting because I am a kid actor, but now I'm old. So I would have never thought I would have been a go-to guy in my disease. Somebody asking me for advice. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know? But what happens is is I have found a lot of people have reached out to me and said someone in their family, not necessarily their kid, but an uncle or a sister. they've and They've asked me about how to go about seeking help for them. And it's been very, very helpful that my... Program and the knowledge that I got at the get-go has allowed me to talk to them and s- steer them towards help. I'm not really a good—I can't really sponsor people because I'm on the road a lot, but yeah. I can really help people take that first initial step, which is so important mm-hmm. to get them to the right step. Because if if the, if you don't if you don't get them started properly then they fall off and it doesn't continue. But if you can get the first couple, you know, get them to the first person and get the first couple steps, like the, you know, yellow brick road, start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. If you can get them started, right. A lot of times there's been a lot of successful uh, situations where people have thanked me for, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for giving me some good advice. Uh, I'm watching you. I'm, you're leading by example. You're a, you know, you're a good role model and, and that makes me feel good in it. And it keeps me going you know that's how it works. You know, let's face it. You know, one of the one of the one of the greatest things that I heard early on in education was that the Dalai Lama. You may or may not know this. They asked him what he thought was uh, the greatest the greatest invention of the 20th century, or you know, what was his biggest thing. And he goes, "The the uh, Dr. Bob and 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 Bill W. Coming up with Alcoholics Anonymous is the greatest achievement of mankind in the 20th century, huh. because it's like." There's no rules. There's no president. There's no guidelines, and it's self. It's self-monitors, it self monitors. It self propels itself. It self polices itself, and it's helped so many people. He felt that that was the greatest thing in, in, that mankind had achieved. That's pretty. That's pretty big words coming from the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Yes, it is. And, yeah. to, and to be part of it, and to be part of it, and be involved in it, made me feel good.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know. I had someone ask me, "Well, how do you, how do you deal with all the God stuff?" And I go, "It's really simple because it's it's of." your nature and a higher power as you see it. No one's dictating to you what it is, and, and that's what I think some people miss or or anyone that's listening that's maybe apprehensive. You know, A lot of this is on your own terms, but you follow the steps because they work. It's proven.
1: The, at Oasis, it was wonderful because Jim knew that 28 days, when he started the program, he knew that 28 days didn't work. So what he had was a 90-day program, but he had you in – from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., you were in meetings or going through um, me, uh, meditation or you're going through yoga or you're going through – I mean, it was, it was constant, constant, constant knowledge and meetings, knowledge and meetings. So you got almost nine months' worth of um, information and schooling in 90 days. So it was amazing. It was amazing. And he and it was genius. I mean, the way he worked out – after a month, you moved from uh, – uh, primary care, which was the main house, which is right close by to, he had properties in the back. So you moved into, it was called structure to where that you had to get, you had two guys per room. Uh, you had a little more freedom and you, and then 60 days in you had to leave the property and go find yourself a job. And I told him, I go, look, I'm not going to go get a job because I'm not going to really have somebody train me to do something that then I'm going to leave. So he let me volunteer. Uh-huh. So I volunteered to the boys and girls club and I would walk to the boys and girls club about a mile away and do that. I loved it. So he weaned you from this to this and lets you, by the time 90 days were up and you went into sober living, if you chose to, you were prepared to go out in the real world. And that's why he, his success ratio was over 50%, which in this, as you know, in this particular disease is amazing.
2: Yes. Yeah, no,
1: it's, so I still go back to the same meetings on Friday night called Fireside, and people are still there and there's I go back and see friends. I just I went back and got my tenure chip and a lot of people are still living on the property. It's no longer a treatment center, but it is a uh, it is an AA meeting facility. Mm-hmm. And uh it's it's been good. It's 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 an amazing education, and and i am you know, like I say, I've been blessed and I lo- and I like it. And and one of the interesting things for me was with the conventions, and you were mentioning helping people at conventions, what I get a kick out of is the other high-profile high celebrities that are in the program that you didn't know about until they see that you're in the program and they see that you've been in a few years. A couple of years is nothing, but once they reach five, 10 years, they kind of know you're serious about it. Mm-hmm. And now it's amazing to me to see how many people that are big names and, and, and positive people that don't talk about it but once they introduce themselves to you you go wow you're the you're a friend of bill too and there's a lot of
2: <laughs> yeah i like it's, can only it's a cool
1: it's a cool club to be part of
2: yes it is yeah. Yeah. absolutely uh oh Butch, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask about some of uh, your fond memories of your days uh you know performing everything from the monsters and you know um you brought up a couple of other cool shows that you had spots on and things like that. Do you have any cool, fun, fond memories that you can kind of share? Oh,
1: yeah. I, uh, I you know, it was funny when um, my uncle, people say, how did you get in the business? And, you know, I had really nobody in the business. The closest thing I had to a celebrity family member was my Uncle John would supply horses to the studios. He was a, called a Wrangler and his nephew named Jack Lilly, who is now uh, in the Stuntman's Hall of Fame with yeah. his son Clay Lilly, he was Zorro's stunt double. Oh, wow. I Williams would go running across the roofs and jump on the horse in his yeah. cape and ride off. That was my cousin. And, and we used to go out and visit John usually once a year for Thanksgiving. And uh, it was interesting because he had this ranch in Newhall, which he still has. The city has grown into his post, into his property line. That's no longer, you know, a dirt road to his house. But what's was interesting about him is his his wife's maiden name was Spawn. And if we all know about the Spawn Ranch with the Manson family, yeah. so Georgia Spawn, her dad was Old Man Spawn. So that was a connection with the uh, the summer of 69. Uh, but what I really enjoyed doing before the Munsters was I was lucky enough to work with Clint Eastwood on Rawhide. I did a lot of Westerns because I could ride a horse. Oh, mm. damn. My uncle was a jockey and I spent a lot of time going to the workouts at five in the morning at Hollywood park. So I could ride a horse and I had a chance to do a lot of Westerns, which I enjoyed, but we did a, I did a year of the real McCoys. I was on the first episode ever of general hospital. The first episode, which is kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I did a few episodes of that. And then um, I remember after the Munsters, I loved doing, I did the monkeys Christmas show, which was, which was one of my favorite weeks for a 14 year old kid. To be hanging with the monkeys who were as big as the beatles in america yeah you know with the tv show they were huge sure i did a movie with chuck jones called the phantom toll booth which allowed me to work with all the voiceover people the a-listers of mel Blanc and june foray Daws butler wow. and uh, Hans Conrad all the people that were the voices of my favorite cartoons i got to work with them face to face for a few years um my three sons, my agent, Mary Grady, her son, Don Grady, was Robbie on My Three Sons. So I did a couple of years of My Three Sons. I did nine episodes, which next was the most guest starring, the most episodes a guest star had, a male guest star had, on the run. That was a 12-year run of the show. So that was cool. And I'm still friends with the Livingston brothers. Um, and then I did Linzville, Saturday morning, Croft, crazy, psychedelic show, the summer of 71. Um, Kind of thought it was sort of silly at the time. But. In hindsight, it was very cool. <laughs> yeah. They're so, all cool. Yeah, I, you know, I was very lucky. I worked a lot for the time I was there, and I and I phased out of it, like I say, in my early 20s. But it was a great time to be around the, the business, no doubt.
3: Yeah. Now, Butch, correct me if I'm wrong. Getting into this, you, you weren't planning – like, your mom wanted your sister to go into movies, and you kind of just fell into it. They took your picture as well? Did I read yes. that correctly?
1: Yes, I went along for a ride to have my sister's uh, photo shoot done mm-hmm. to see if she would be possibly uh, up for some acting. Right. Mary Grady, my, Mary Grady, who is like the coolest, she had just started her agency. So she was like looking for clientele. And um, I was, other than her son, Don, I was like literally her first. You know paying client i was like one of the more successful early on kids she went on to do great things with a lot of people but i was i was there right at the get-go and the gentleman took pictures of my sister and then afterwards he looked over at me and he says can i take some pictures of him he's got a kind of a cool look and his name was amos carr who was a very famous photographer on hollywood boulevard was his studio he took a picture put it in the window and um a producer and a director happened to be walking by they looked over they were casting a movie they still hadn't cast his youngest son uh, of Eddie Albert and Jane Wyatt, and they uh, he, he, he went in and he inquired about me, found me, and we went up for an interview, and they uh, they basically uh, hired me. And I told them, there was no experience, and they go, well, you gotta start somewhere. And it <laughs> turned out to be a movie called The Two Little Bears. Uh, Brenda Lee was 15, my older sister, Soupy Sales was the comic cop.
3: Oh, okay. uh, Nancy
1: uh, Culp, Miss Hathaway, was my school teacher, and Eddie Albert played my dad, and Jane Wyatt played my mom. And it was six weeks of work which was a perfect entry-level movie for me to get my feet wet. And the rest is history.
2: That's nice. so awesome. Uh, I love it. Uh, was there anything uh, from the set of, of monsters that, that when you look back, it like, Oh, that was a pain in the ass. Like the makeup process or anything, or was it all just cause it was so new, just a joy.
1: The makeup was, the makeup was a kind of, it was a pain, but you know, it was, it was only three days a week. You know, we only, we were oh. only making Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And, I probably had it easier than anybody else because, again, being a kid, you're in and out of school. But um, the school was kind of a problematic situation because you would be busy constantly. At least the adults, when they you know, took a break between sets, they could go over and chat and talk, whatever. And the kid, you got to squeeze three hours of schooling in during the day. But luckily for me, ha-ha, in the summer, when I wasn't in school, that's when they wrote all the scripts that featured Eddie. <laughs> so that, I, like worked all day.
3: oh that's cool i didn't realize it was only two seasons that is crazy yeah, for seasons, the impact but, that but, it I,
1: was. but but i will tell you the coolest thing about being on the Munsters is number one it was it was fun and being the only kid at universal when you could go explore when you had free time was wonderful but being becoming friends with george barris who created the Munster coach yeah. and the, the dragula being a kid who built these models and being able to ride around in the car itself and being able to go to his shop and, and see Elvis and Sinatra and Sonny and Cher picking up their cars, I became I was friends with George till the day he died. And uh, I tour around the, the country right now with a Munster coach and a Dragula and uh, do a lot of automotive personal appearance events because I'm a gearhead. Mm-hmm. And I'm a member of a car club called Dead Man's Curve out of New Jersey. They uh, hired me to come in as a celebrity. We became friends. And when I bought my coach, they actually made me a member. There's only like 15 of us. and It's not a big club, but it's the best club. So yeah so for me George um, was my favorite thing to do when I would read the script on Monday morning if the Munster coach was going to be used two things I got the ride in it and number two we got to be outside we didn't see the sun very often because that was a, most of the Munsters you know scenes were done indoors right
3: right right that is
2: cool So you have you have the uh, a version of the Munster coach or you yes. have a version of the Dragula or both yep both that is so awesome. I've always yeah. loved the Dragula. It's funny you talk about building models. I think I still have one in, in the wrapping. It's like, one of these days yeah. I'll build that. Uh, well, I'm building
1: my my new Dragula right now. I, I sold my old one because I was touring with two cars. I only need the coach right now. So I'm building an accurate Dragula. The one that I had bought had a Chevy in it, which was fine. The guy was a Chevy guy. But the original one had a small block Ford. So I've got a uh, a 347 Stroke or small block Ford uh with a power built power power glide and we're building this thing as a dragster to where it will launch and carry the wheels at the drag strip it's going to be badass nearly 500 horse 485 to 490 horse but the car is going to weigh about 1300 pounds it's not going to be very heavy and uh it's going to be wild and we're hopefully going to build it and uh it's funny i'm talking to somebody about taking it to yokohama um over in Tokyo in December, hopefully, yeah. for the Moon Eyes show, you know, the Moon Eyes logo for, for Hot Rods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, the uh, the car's cool, and then the coach is going to be sold. I'm building another more accurate coach, too. So that's kind of an interesting thing that I get to play around with the monster cars. This, yeah. this you know, Hot Rods are Hot Rods. One of the things about the 60s, too, is I've always had a good time with guys in Hot Rods because they're like the blue-collar cool millionaire guys you never know how rich they are but they they walk around in jeans and t-shirts and they have really cool cars but they're like regular you know red white and blue guys you know they're sure. like they're like the real deal and i used to always hang around with the worker bees at the studios because i was never comfortable with stars i was just the guy that happened to be in front of the camera but i was friends with everybody behind the camera
2: yeah yeah well, you talk about uh, your, your first car being a Mach One. I, you know, I am a, yeah. a Mustang guy. Prior to my son being born, I had a, a very cool saline Mustang. But uh, what are some yeah. of the cars in the collection?
1: Oh, right now, nothing really. I just have my I have my truck that tows them, and I have the Munster coach, and I have a drag that's being built. But when I go back to uh, restoring and building some, I'm going to go get a '69 Mach One again. Uh, I had an L88 Corvette, 427, 435. Uh, Four-speed, you know, four eleven gears factory. That's the one I should have kept because that's a very high-dollar car now. But um, I'd like to have, you know, in '69 I had a, I had my Mach One, I had a Mark three Lincoln for for date night. I had <laughs> my Harley. Um, I would be ha- I would be happy with just a couple, two, three cars. One luxury car, you know, one race car. Um, I'm pretty easy. Nice. <laughs> maybe a 3 maybe a three forty Cuda.
2: Oh yeah, the cooters are badass. I always it
1: has, what, to be, it has to be a seventy. You know, it has to be the right year. Yeah, I always
2: <laughs> wanted a Judge. I always thought that would be cool. That was it. The, was it the Judge two that had the tachometer on the hood outside of the car?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also Firebirds did too. Yeah, that'd be badass. I always
3: just wanted something that was reliable. <laughs> <That's
1: it>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. The cars that the, i couldn't have asked i tell people this too especially when i do speaker meetings i go you know i've been very blessed and i'm still here to talk about it but i couldn't have asked for a better year to be born 53 first year of the corvette i'm born so i saw a little bit and remember a little bit of the 50s but the 60s and the 70s were the prime years of cars and sh- music and movies and it just i couldn't have asked for a better window of opportunity you know yeah. and i'm you know and i made it through the first 16 sober and then I went out for 41 years. I figure if I make it to 85 years old, I will have basically half my life sober and half my life drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I started strong and I ended strong.
2: That's funny. <laughs> I was doing the math on that last last night. I was like, okay, <laughs> really, the first time I was drunk was probably 20. I'm going to be 43 this year, so yeah, yep. I could I could do more life sober
3: than than not.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I figured it out. If I make it to 82 years old, I'll be 50 50. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you got this, Butch Well,
2: well, Butch, we like to have the uh, guest take the, the last word and something positive, but before we okay. get to that we do some fun, random questions here so just uh, right. just have fun with them.
3: Uh, let's see Go ahead, Mikey, you start it Alright um, If they were to make a movie about you, Butch Patrick, who would you cast to play yourself?
1: That's a tough one um, I always thought that I would be Mel Gibson because we kind of resemble each other. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, since uh, Mel's had some, Mel's a little <laughs> old, he's younger than me actually though, I think. Uh, who could, who could play me? Um, we'll guess. Uh, I guess the challenge with
2: your story is we'd have to have a, it's a, a, a child, uh, you know, teenager. And then, you well, know. I'll
1: tell you what you could have. Uh, there's a kid that did Mockingbird Lane that played Eddie. He did a really good job. His name is Mason Cook. Uh-huh. Huh. okay good actor he's done a lot of work mason cook would be great
2: awesome all right uh oh this is a fun one especially that you brought up uh music movies and cars and stuff if you were stuck on a, a deserted island but you had just one movie and one <laughs> album to bring with you what would they be
1: <laughs> blind faith supergroup. one album only of blind faith because i took that to brazil with me i remember. Uh, it was great. And one movie, you know, for some reason, I I can watch Castaway over and over again. Since I'm lost in an island anyway, you know, maybe The Martian. Hold on. The Martian. The Martian. Okay.
3: You know, I think that's the fastest anyone has answered that question. <laughs> Normally, people need a lot of thinking, myself included, when we came up with these. So that's awesome. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. If you could have dinner with just one person, living or not, who would you choose and
1: why? Uh, oh God, that's a tough one. You know, that's, you got good questions. Um, I think I would probably choose Fred Gwynn and I'll tell you why, because I never really appreciated everything he did for me at the time. And afterwards, he, this, he distanced himself from the Munsters and although I hung out with Al Lewis and Yvonne DiCarlo and everybody from the show, it would be fun and it would be very, I would love to be able to tell him how important he was to my life.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: What well, was it about
2: Fred? Was he, Was he? because you said he didn't really have a male role model figure, was he kind of that for you and a mentor?
1: Maybe. Uh, I'll tell you, at the time I did the Munsters, I was living, what I did is I, um, I was living in uh, Illinois at the time, and they, my agent got them to fly me out because they had already hired a kid, and then the network said, no, we want to change the mom and the kid. So they flew me out and i went from the airport my uncle picked me up at the airport took me up to cbs studio center where i then proceeded to do a screen test no reading no right into a screen test and they hired me so my mom was living in the east coast with kenny who had become a washington senator he was traded mm-hmm. from the angels so now i'm on the west coast i hired a woman to take me to work who picked me up every day at my uncle's house and i spent the next two years working on the monster so literally I spent, that was kind of like my family yeah. during that period. Even though I was living with my uncle, my mom and my my dad, and my sister, and my brothers were all on the East Coast. So yeah, maybe so. And and it was funny because there's a guy named uh, I don't know if you know who, uh, who uh, uh, Robert Wool is, the actor W W H L Harless. Oh okay. He had the show. Had the show. He came up to me at a convention recently, and we're in the green room, and I, I was going to go over and say hi to him. And he, he, he goes, Butch, got to ask you a question. And I go, were you aware at your young age of the greatness that you were working with in Mr. Fred Gwynn? And I said, you know something? No, I really didn't at the time. And I go, but you're right. He He was amazing. And he goes, no, this guy was like over the top, super talented, and unbelievable how good he was. I just wanted to know if you were aware of it. And I told him, I go, not as much as I should
2: have been. Yeah, uh, yeah life always works that way, doesn't it? Um, yeah. All right. This is – I always like this one. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be?
1: To bring peace on Earth. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at, not, at not at all. Not at all. You stole your answer. Uh, fly. fly, man. To fly. fly. Yep. Well, yeah. Well, I, I, in my dreams, I fly all the time.
3: Yeah? Yeah.
1: It's, I'm always, I'm always. I don't know what it means, but I'm always flying around. So That's yeah,
2: cool. That, like giving me shit. <laughs> mine, mine is is, so my are beautiful. He always gives me style. a hard time because it's not, it's not bring peace, but it's like to be able to heal. I people, would be able to yeah. heal, and well, I'm like, Fuck. I, was
1: doing I was doing a spoof of Miss Universe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> And then give the wave.
2: Mine are like to
3: transport. I want to teleport. I don't want to fly. I just want to get there. That would be my superpower. And then he makes me feel like a dick with his, I want to heal people. And I'm just like, okay, I should have
2: said that. Uh, Last word? Uh, Give it one more. How about we do that one right there because it's always fun. All
1: right, Butch, what are your pet peeves? Any pet peeves? God. Um there's some there this last year there's been several that have come to surface yeah but uh, but mostly i don't i'm i'm a real i've i've always been a reason i've I've always been an honest person but even more so now that in my sobriety i really uh it really pisses me off when people just you know lie for no reason you know i mean just for no reason just because it's habit for a lot of people Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah that's a pet peeve is you know i mean i know i probably you know, just stretch the truth quite a bit when I when I was in my out there, but I never really just woke up and just lied to, for lying's sake. And a lot of sure. people just you know don't tell the truth. That yeah. bothers me.
2: Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Well, Mister Patrick, uh, we like to leave the guests with the last words of encouragement. Uh, and, you know, be it to uh, folks struggling with sobriety or recently into it or long term, maybe a loved one. What whatever you'd have to say to just kind of encourage people during these times. Yeah.
1: Well. First of all, in 41 years out there, guys, and you know, if I can do it, it can be done. Surround yourself with good people. I think one of the reasons I got sober was as a kid actor, I took direction well, and that's what you gotta do. You gotta take direction from people that know more than you know, and you've gotta, you gotta just forget everything. You'll relearn it, you'll come back, but to get sober and to get right, you're gonna have to trust others and trust them to know more than you do and do what they say, and just give it a chance, mm-hmm. and be smart and not strong. If you, if you if you feel something, if you're watching TV and somebody's shooting up and it, it, it triggers, change the channel.
3: Yeah.
1: And you know if you're if you're don't let peer pressure don't, don't act like you want to go out with your friends. You know and be strong and sit all sit with my friends while they're drinking and 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 that you know you you want to get you don't want a haircut don't go to the barbershop.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. you know,
1: literally, and be smart and not strong. I mean, that's the way. It really, that's it. That's the the key one is use your brain on this one and be smart, and it, it makes it a lot easier.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mr. Patrick, man, this has been a real honor and a pleasure. Thank you so very much for joining us. One more. Who is this, Mr. Patrick? Is there so? Is
1: my dad behind me? <laughs>
2: Sorry about that, <laughs> Butch. Butch, you're, you go. you're freaking awesome. Thank you. This has been, been a real pleasure and uh, in, in a lot of ways a, a bucket list conversation. Hopefully Woo. we get to
3: meet you in person. Yeah, buddy. Hey, congrats on the 10 years, by the way, too. That's Thank awesome. Thank you, man. Hell yeah. Yes, Let's sir. do it again. Butch Patrick, you know... That was just a delightful talk. <laughs> a delightful I, I even, talk. That's, the, that's the only word I can think of. It was just a delightful talk. He was just very informative, very to the point. Got it. I, I loved that. I had a really good... I mean, I have a good time with all of our to- guest talks, but I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Everyone we've t- spoken to is amazing, but Butch is just
2: incredibly positive. Yeah. He was... Y- you know, you'll see it, and I see it with... Uh, People that when they're initially struggling, struggling and doing the AA group that I've been through and I've been that guy too where you're, you're feeling downtrodden butch, he's just like, you're like, this guy's just high on life. He enjoys life, 10 years sober and had
3: so many great experiences. He's just like, life is cool, man. And when he thought his ticket was being punched, he was so damn positive about it. Like, oh, well, all <laughs> right, here we go. Here it is. And it's like, <laughs> at least I'm going sober. And it's like, Wow. What a very optimistic outlook on life. Yeah, that cracked me up. He goes, Whoa, what a bitch. I get
2: sober and and it's like, man, I'm going to be my ticket's going to be punched, but fortunately it
3: wasn't the case. Yeah, he got treatment. Yeah, yeah, he got treatment and he's all good now and doing better than ever and it was like I said, it was just really nice talking to him. It was, it was
1: just delightful. Just delightful.
2: <laughs> uh, hey, coming for you guys next week, are you a fan of hard rock and metal? Well, Austin Diamon, drummer from Devil Driver will be our guest. We're looking forward to sharing his story. A, a totally awesome guy devil driver (laughs) and uh, so we're looking forward to sharing that guys with you and of course we we don't play any of the music if you're not a fan he's just he's a totally fun and awesome guy too very cool conversation and so regardless trust me you're going to want to hear it or watch the video on our youtube channel and if you're listening on the podcast platform you're going youtube channel yeah, click the link in the description. We get all of our interviews up there on our YouTube channel for you guys to check out. And of course, if you're listening on Apple Podcast, uh, please leave us uh, five stars, uh, write a review, share it with some friends on whatever platform you're listening to. It's just that simple. It's how we get more listeners and keep this thing going. Do it. Anything else, Mister Naraki? Nah, I'm going home. On that note, keep knocking doors down.
4: 5150 is a lifestyle we believe in pushing yourself finding your passion knowing your dreams and working hard always striving to make those dreams a reality we believe life's too short to sit back and say what if go after it grab it and make it happen Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150ltm.com. That website again.
0: that the information we are sharing is accurate. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.